Lawyers always need to be on top of their game, or at least appear to be. It can feel overwhelming to recognize or admit when we aren't, and even harder to reach out and get help. Welcome to Sidebar, brought to you by North Carolina's Lawyer Assistance Program, where lawyers help lawyers by sharing their experience, strength, and hope as they delve into their personal journeys of recovery. Hey everyone, this is Robin Moradis, the director of the North Carolina Lawyer Assistance Program. Today I'm here with a corporate litigator who's been sober many years and is an awesome volunteer. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So I normally don't say something like this, but I want to give our listening audience a heads up that some of what we discussed might be triggering to them especially if they grew up in an alcoholic home or an otherwise narcissistically abusive home. So if you're listening and something we say here triggers you emotionally in an unmanageable way, you have some choices. You can stop the episode. You can call us at the Lawyer Assistance Program to have a conversation. Or this might be an indicator it's time to do some deeper healing work and we can give you a therapy referral. So with that, let's dive in. Your article pretty succinctly summarizes a certain type of abusive and dysfunctional family that many lawyers were raised in. In fact, I would venture a guess that a lot of lawyers become lawyers because they come from this kind of a home environment. Tell us about it. I am a double winner when it comes to dysfunction. I was adopted at a young age, so... My life began, I think, uh, in a dysfunctional environment even before I was born. I don't have uh, much information about my birth mother, but she was in rural Virginia. And I can't imagine that whatever circumstances led her to choose adoption or giving her baby away were conducive to happy living. So uh, to whatever extent a stressful environment affects a developing child in utero, I was subject to those. And then I did not have any of the bonding experiences with my birth mother. Um, And then I came to live with an adoptive family that was a very self-righteous family might be a good way to express that. Uh, They were very strong in in, an evangelical fundamentalist church and uh, had very black and white ideas about right and wrong and about good behavior and bad behavior and about the different roles. And you add to that, they had come from a line of alcoholics and and mental illness, about which I don't have details. I just know some of the symptoms, which were primarily suicide and other alcohol-related kinds of issues at the generation just prior to my parents' generation. And what that looked like being raised is there was not a lot of room for childlike emotions, happiness, gratitude, laughter, in certain environments was okay. Uh, Lots of other environments were meant to just be quiet and listening and watching. And uh, of course, exploration type behaviors were very tightly constrained. And uh, I got in trouble a lot 
and uh, punishments didn't always match the activities, which were often, you know, innocent, curious types of behaviors. My dad was a serious rager, uh, suffered a few beatings uh, that were well beyond discipline, even in a bear not the rod kind of philosophy. And I was always very terrified of him. My mom was often absent. Either she had some kind of undefined, undiagnosable disease that left her in the bed, or she was away at work uh, later in my life. And that was the environment that I grew up in, very broad strokes. Thank you. Some of what you describe in your article parallels what it's like to grow up in an alcoholic home, only there's no alcohol in yours. And you've already mentioned this, but in ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics, we talk about the intergenerational trauma that gets passed down, and the actual drinking or the drug use is almost an inconsequential footnote that tends to skip a generation. So I was going to ask you if you know if your grandparents drank, but it sounds like you have enough anecdotal information to understand this is intergenerational trauma being passed down. That is, that is absolutely correct. And just a quick point of clarification for all those listening, ACA now refers mostly to itself by its longer name, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families. Uh, Just to echo the point you made, a family does not have to have actual addiction ongoing to create all of the chaos and, and childhood effects that that come out of this kind of environment. I don't know that my grandparents themselves were alcoholics, but in their family at their generation, there was a lot of that. And a lot of my work in ACA is looking at at the way my parents raised me and without blaming them at all, because they were a product of their own raising that was highly dysfunctional. Right. And and the one of the gifts is now I can examine my own behavior with my own outer children. I, I call them my outer children to distinguish them from my inner children. I can now examine my behavior with them in this new light, and I can I can start to stop that intergenerational train at their generation, and uh, hopefully they will be more free of it, if not completely free of it, than I was. It's kind of a systems approach. It's uh, rather remarkable the levels of healing that can happen. You have a striking line about the polarity of emotional support being reversed. So in a healthy family, the parents emotionally support their children. When their children are distraught, they will seek to comfort their children When their children are confused, uh, they seek to bring clarity. When their children are afraid, they seek to bring a sense of security and safety. Uh, When their children are curious, they seek to build a rich environment for exploration. All these kinds of the healthy way that a parent will raise a child. In a dysfunctional family, or at least in my dysfunctional family, that support relationship is reversed. So there was an expectation that I would provide emotional support to my parents. So when they were afraid, they would look to me to be a source of redemption, perhaps, uh, is a good way to characterize it. 
for them and their fears. And, and when they felt guilty, uh, similarly, they, they would look to me as a validation of whatever it is they were feeling. Whenever they were angry, I was there to placate their anger. And, you know, when they were sad, I was there to cheer them up. Uh, subconscious on their part, I'm sure. Uh, training, though, that they definitely delivered to me. And I was good at it. It is so interesting how much the roles get reversed and the parents are the children and the children are the parents. I know a lot of lawyers who are raised in that, myself included. And I just think it's very interesting, the trajectory that we all kind of follow in terms of the overachievement, academic, things like that. Not everybody, but it's more common than people may realize. So while we're on this subject of just sort of understanding the orbit and the universe that this creates, uh, explain the phrase that you use, social gaslighting. Did I use that term? Yes. Oh, wow. I don't remember using that word. (laughs) (laughs) I'll read you the sentence. (laughs) The impact of these abuses were compounded by the high status my family held in my community a kind of social gaslighting. I still run into so many people who tell me how much they appreciate my dad, how valuable he was to the community. People praise my mom's sweetness, diligence, and hard work. Wow, that is a good sentence, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, before I answer that question, can I just refer to something else you mentioned in your question about overachievement and how it relates to coming from a dysfunctional family. Sure. It's about just a basic kind of desire for control. One of the fundamentals of my dysfunctional family is a lack of consistency. Uh, This is uh, the most obvious example would be my dad's rage would come out of, as far as I could see, nowhere. Right. So no matter how perfect my behavior would have been, or at least innocuous or inconsequential, sometimes he would go into a rage and direct that at me. So I developed this strong fear of a uncontrolled environment. And one response to that is this attempt to control what I can to a very meticulous degree. You know, it showed up in school. I was having this discussion with my daughter the other day, who is like me, very bright, and just was kind of a natural, is a natural at school, and her grades were starting to drop off. And and she's like, why are you mad at me? You said I don't have to be perfect. And I'm like, you're right. You don't have to be perfect. And then I explained to her what, what I would do when I was her age is every single point that was available, so every extra credit point, every extra assignment that could be done, I would do. So even if I got a perfect score on the test, I would go and I'd do all this extra work just to ensure that my grade would not drop. And I don't want that for my daughter, but I do want her to do the best. And I'm like, that's a level of perfection you do not have to meet. On the other hand, you should not be getting low Bs because you're not turning in assignments or... You're not spending the time necessary. So we're going to find the middle ground for you, honey. And uh, But that was my attempt to create a safe place for myself. 
this place where everything was as perfect as it could possibly be. And in the subconscious hope that this would somehow protect me from the chaotic neglect and abuse that I would receive at home. The social gaslighting part of that is it was invisible, right? And I was invisible and my emotions were invisible in the broader uh, social context in which I live. So this was true in church. This was true in the kind of community field in which my parents would live. And they were, they were visible. They were a big part of the community. My dad was a successful local politician and my mom was a successful business lady. You know, I would introduce myself to someone along the way and they're like, oh, are you this guy's son? I was like, yeah, that's my dad. And I'm like, oh, he's such a wonderful man. He's done so much for the community. And they would just give this like glowing report. And inside, I, I tighten up, I freeze up. Uh, you know, I, I feel it in my chest and my stomach. And it's a condition kind of of being trapped, right? Because it would not really be helpful. Uh, and certainly not encouraged or well-received to say, you know what, that guy was an asshole and and he did this, he beat me, he didn't provide me support that I needed and all these other things that were true in my experience at home. So that creates a a high degree of inner conflict um, that I'm still working out today. One of the things that... I use as an analogy is this idea of concentric circles, like when you throw a pebble in a pond and the circles go out. Mm -hmm. And when this kind of narcissistic abuse is present, the further out you are, the more wonderful the person seems. (laughs) The closer in you are, the hatred and the confusion. And it's just crazy making as to why does everybody love him so or her so? when this is what's going on, but because of the gaslighting that goes on even at the home, interpersonally, it's crazy making, we can't even trust our actual lived experience. Mm -hmm. It's like we can't trust our interpretation of reality as it's happening. I would say that's a very apt description. The messages come from authority figures about what is, and it's almost diametrically opposed to what my actual experience is and that creates kind of a mental emotional spiritual schism right you know it makes it difficult to be truly intimate with anybody it definitely makes it really difficult to be trusting of authority figures it makes it difficult even to just feel comfortable in low-key social situations because I look out in a, in a social situation and um, I see people having uh, rewarding, satisfying interactions with each other and this developmental matrix that is in my brain says, all right, where is the explosion going to come from, right? This is a, a facade and the curtain is going to be pulled back and so as I have progressed in my recovery, I have gone from a place where I completely fake it to what it's like to be in that kind of a circumstance and how, you know, I imagine what those people are being motivated by 
But as healing occurs and as my brain adapts and heals, I start to see, you know, it's actually kind of nice to interact with somebody, get to know them, learn to trust them. And perhaps most importantly, it's really nice to not depend on them being perfect. So they can take an action that will remind me of what I grew up with, but I don't have to suddenly click into that ultra self-protective place that I developed as a, as a child. I can be like, oh, they're just being a human and I can let it pass or I can set a boundary or I can leave if it's an egregious kind of change in their behavior. Your article does such a good job of pulling back the curtain. In the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, they talk about drinking being but a symptom that we had to get down to causes and conditions. Don't get me wrong. Once a cucumber becomes a pickle, it can never go back to being a cucumber again. So it's not like once we get the healing for the underlying causes and conditions that we can safely drink again, that ship has sailed. But I have found if we keep our recovery at just the drinking level, we're never going to get any real peace or serenity. And most likely, eventually, we will go back out. So when you're talking about how this being raised in this environment affects you, you talk about a personality freeze, that you're kind of frozen in this tween state, and that you cast people in these roles, for example, the client that was invalidating of your work. What happens in that paradigm? So the, the personality freeze that I'm talking about there, I'm speaking in the context of personal development. You know, there are stages of development that children go through, and this should be fairly obvious to any healthy parent. You know, when they're young, they can't talk, and then they learn to talk, and they learn to walk, and then they learn to bathe, and so on. And there's emotional parallels to those basic kinds of activities as well. When we're really young, you know, we have this idea that the people around us, they're our parents, and they're, like, ultimately trustworthy. And then we begin to learn that they're human. And as that process continues, eventually we form almost a more of a friendship kind of relationship with our parents on a, on a normal trajectory. Somewhere around on a normal trajectory in the tweens and, and early teens, as I understand, there's a separation that's supposed to begin to occur with parents. And that includes, you know, a healthy degree of rebellion. It's a little different from a younger child say, no, I'm just not going to do that. And more like, a, I'm going to be a little more sneaky about it. And I'm going to start to define who I am. What happened for me is at every kind of stage up until tween, my development was stunted and my intellect could make up for the emotional pieces. So I was very articulate, even as a young child. So I could maneuver through social situations, and I had a kind of development. But when I hit my tweens, it all just kind of stopped. And I was stuck in that place of absolute defiance. And what that meant is that I was not becoming my own person. I was living in kind of a stuck defiance to my parents at every level and every detail that I could. And I would make it look like I was not doing that when I felt like it kind of suited my purposes. But inside, emotionally, at every stage, I was living in 
just kind of abject rebellion to my parents at that point. And then as I would move out into the world and away from them, every relationship, it exists still, right? I'm still a pickle. There is this impulse, okay, you are my father, and I am going to react to you as my evil father. And I'm going to to live in defiance of you. Uh, but now, you know, I have lots of tools and some practice, and I can choose to open my heart a little more and react to you as a as who you are. And also as a part of that, I begin to discover who I really am. And I no longer have to live in abject rebellion against my parents where they had good qualities. I can adopt and value those good qualities, or I can just be indifferent to them altogether and choose, you know, what, what is it that my higher power wants for me in this moment? My true higher power, as opposed to the substitute one of uh, air quotes, evil parents. In your article, you talk about survival traits, avoid where possible, manipulate where I must, and dominate where I can. And you say, you may recognize these traits as those practiced by the colleagues we'd often prefer to avoid. <laughs> so the profession is rife with these types of behaviors. But then you go on to talk about survival traits versus thrival traits. Expand on that a little bit. What do you mean? I think this concept comes from AA. The idea is that many of our character defects are really just normal human instincts that are extended to an unhealthy and destructive degree. Similarly, my tools for survival are normal adaptations to an abnormal and difficult environment. And as I can unfreeze that tween, as I can begin to grow into who I am, then I no longer have to hold to those survival traits. And I can see what is the mechanism that I'm deploying in that and and start to use that in a life-affirming, social-affirming, self-affirming kind of way. And that's what I mean from transitioning from, you know, using a survival trait, which was absolutely necessary for me to survive when I was stuck in that childhood environment to using that in a way that's healthy and serves others and myself at the same time. And one of the classic trauma tools is hypervigilance. And what that looks like for me is like I was talking about when I walked into the social situations earlier, I'm scanning the room for threats and also targets. And I'm speaking in real time. I fortunately don't live this way to the same degree anymore. But when I walk into a room, I would scan for targets and I would scan for threats. I mean, like, who are the people that are most like my dad when he was about to emotionally explode? And I'm looking for the people who are most likely to provide some protection against a dad who's about to explode. And how can I manipulate them to keep me safe in that environment? And what skill that is associated with hypervigilance is sensitivity and ability to discern details. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm not caught up in this game of self-protection, 
I can take that same energy and that same skill and I can use it, for example, to listen to what is a client saying or what is an opposing party saying and try to help them to understand their own desires and their own kind of state. And we can get into some details and, and find ways where instead of I'm using one to protect me from the other, I'm developing a place where everybody can look and see each other's stuff because I can see both and bring them forward in a detailed way and, and that helps to resolve issues. If it's gone to litigation, then I can deploy those skills in a professional way. I can find the details of where the opposing side has maybe overlooked some important facts or important law and use those to the advantage of my client. And it's the same skill, but it's not as emotionally charged in this self-protective way as it might otherwise be. And in that way, I can thrive. In a social context, I can become a great friend. When I'm sensitive to where you are at and I'm not worried about what was going on with you is going to harm me, or how I might use it to promote my cause, then suddenly I can become a very helpful ally and help you understand where you're at. And I can give away what I've received. It works really well. People coming into ACA have not grieved in a long time. And when I first came into ACA, there was a friend who helped me get in touch with my grief and she used this skill to just kind of like help me hear what my inner child was shouting at me that I had completely blocked out and I will never forget that afternoon we spent and I cried more tears in that afternoon than all the previous years of my life and I finally opened up in that moment to true healing and now i i use that with other folks like wow what a gift to like help somebody in that moment help them change the course in their life i'm always amazed by people who come from these environments who don't drink and drug <laughs> it gave me a place to go when i couldn't bear the pain the drugs and alcohol are an additional trauma Right. You know, they, they, in the beginning, they are uh, very effective at halting the feelings of fear and desperation. It did not take very long before repeated uses were additional trauma. You know, in the end, every time was just an awful experience. And uh, so I definitely needed all that time after I came in to AA and NA. I needed that time to let my brain heal from that trauma because that was the most recent trauma in time. We used to talk about clean time. I remember there was a gentleman in the recovery community in Asheville and he was like, all the time you spent walking into the woods, you have to spend walking back out. Right. 20 miles in, 20 miles out. Right. <laughs> and so that kind of inflection point that is the last day we use or drink from there, we're just turning around and we're walking back out of the woods. So, so I had to get to that stage where all of the chemical use had been done, you know, and then I could start this kind of deeper 
layer. ACA is not easy. There were so many times I would be at a school event or extracurricular event and uh, other kids who were there would have at least one parent supporting them and I would be there alone. I can remember specifically I was in, I guess, Cub Scouts or Y Guides or, or one of those. And we were doing the thing where you, you have the little race car that you make. And my parents had bought me the kit and handed it to me and said, there'll be the race on this date. And that was it. So, you know, I did my best. You know, I assembled the kit with the instructions and I spray painted it. And then we go and we get there and all the other kids, it, it seemed, I'm sure I was not the only one who was in this circumstance. Um, but a large number of kids, they had these amazing looking um, cars and, you know, they had like, uh, they had been sanded down and they had been stained and they had racing stripes and they had modifications. I remember one kid, you know, he was an advanced competitor with the race and he was like, yeah, I uh, added, you know, lead weights to it so it would go faster. And, and I didn't even, you know, have any conception that those kinds of things were possible. Again, there's no blame. My, my parents were doing the best they knew how in the moment, but they weren't there to help me through that. They weren't there to help, help me see what was, I was missing. They weren't there to cheer me on. And when I lost in the first round, they weren't there to say, well, I'm so proud of you for trying. I'm so proud of you for showing up and participating. You know, that shows that you have some character. They weren't there to help me be a good sport for the people who won. So instead, I was just kind of off in the corner, you know, moping, trying not to cry and plotting my revenge. <laughs> Which I, I have yet to receive, by the way. I have not gotten my revenge on anybody for anything. Well, one of the things I'd like to end on is just um, acknowledging that for those of us who get to this level of healing, we become experts. We become almost like clinically trained experts on attachment and therapeutic stuff and family systems work. I mean, I have a friend who also comes from a similar background and she's an attachment expert. What have you found in the therapeutic community? So thank you for bringing that up. I am a little dismayed at the state of the professional field around these issues. And there are probably parallels to AA and alcoholism in the early days. But I think the professional field is really lagging behind in its understanding of these issues, how they work, and how they get transferred. There may be more at a research level than I'm unaware of, but my experience among practitioners in the field is they seem to have really very little awareness of how much this kind of environment can produce really dramatic and painful effects. And they have even less idea what to do about it. But even among, you know, on the ground counselors, there is a growing awareness that this is an issue uh, but I find that the number of therapists who actually have a ability to usefully help me is pretty small. Among the best are folks who practice a kind of 
a modality called internal family systems. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of thread of research has a, a pretty strong understanding of how these kinds of things come along. Certainly in the substance abuse world, there is a fairly sophisticated and growing understanding of family systems like external family systems and that that approach to problematic behaviors and where they come from and how they perpetuate. But among just folks who are out there practicing, again, there's an awareness that it's a thing that exists, but not a lot of real kind of useful experience or understanding of of how to intervene in that kind of system and get folks out. Another group of practitioners are the folks who are very much focused on the somatic part of therapy. They don't necessarily understand the transgenerational piece of this, but I found that their work is very um, effective at learning to connect mind, body, and emotions There is a book, The Body Keeps the Score, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a challenging read used with care. But that book kind of really explores the ideas of how these emotions that flow out of the traumas that we've had in our life become a part of our bodies. And we experience the emotions in our body. And then that becomes an entry point to healing the damage that these traumas and strong emotions have wrought as we can use our bodies to connect to that. But, but generally, especially when it comes to, um, you know, transgenerational trauma and linking a particular individual's behavior to pressures that are being provided in this broader system, I find that that very few practitioners have have much idea about that or what to do about it. I'll interject here that there is growing awareness in the inpatient treatment community of trauma-informed treatment. This is a burgeoning field, and I ended up going to a trauma intensive myself, (laughs) and I was about 30 years sober. And it changed my life. Mm -hmm. And I was at a meeting just last week and I mentioned this experience. And I said, you know, I probably should have gone to this treatment 25 or 30 years ago, (laughs) but we didn't have it then. And I've heard some of these experts who are talking about the body keeps score. There is a growing movement of understanding how this is impacting but it hasn't trickled down to the individual practitioner yet in terms of treatment modalities at the individual level, because a lot of it is experiential. Mm-hmm. This even came up at the Minority Outreach Conference. We have an ask it basket sometimes in some of the conferences that we do. And someone had written a question about being an empath. And the therapist who was presenting talked about hypervigilance based on trauma and becoming a highly sensitive person that was hypervigilant and extremely sensitive picking up on other people's energy versus true empathy, <laughs> you know, versus being a true empath, which kind of has almost science fiction fantasy connotations. The speaker was very effective in what she was conveying, but circling back to your point earlier about using these skills in a different way. I do believe it's what has allowed me to be real effective as a lap director. (laughs) So I will 
as a volunteer and participant, uh, gladly endorse your leadership of LAP. <laughs> anyway, do you have anything else that I haven't asked you about that you would like to add? We used to say about NA, and I assume they say this in AA as well, it's a program for people who want it, not people who need it. The same is probably even more true for ACA and similar types of groups. The symptoms we have, avoidance being a big one, and isolation, ACAs are expert level at these in a, in a way. And a few ACAs like to, to consider ACA the quote-unquote graduate school of recovery. But I will counter them and say that it's quote-unquote special school of recovery. It's uh, those of us who need so much extra attention and care and, and uh, additional tutoring to kind of get to this place of, of emotional sobriety. Uh, but that said, the work is more detailed and harder and certainly far more emotionally charged than any of the work I ever did in other recovery programs. Right. But the rewards that I have received as a result of doing the work in ACA are just that much greater. Mm. Now, it, it's uh, just because I was coming up from the sub-basement and now I'm on the first floor, <laughs> it took all that extra effort. That said, I, I have a, a much more robust um, store of gratitude today um, because, you know, I'm, I'm finally seeing light that has eluded me since before I was born. If I hadn't found my way here, there's no telling where I would have ended up because I was, I was at a turning point. So I appreciate your willingness to share at this level on the podcast because I think it gives other people permission to look if they need to look. It evidences a deep level of recovery. So thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your transparency. And thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a great joy and privilege to be here. Thank you for joining us at the sidebar. If this is your first time, we encourage you to listen to another episode or two, subscribe to our newsletter, and peruse the resources at www.nclap.org. And if you know a lawyer who could use a hand, please share this episode with them today. Remember, at Sidebar, you are not alone. In fact, you are in quite good company.